The Lever. Subscriber-supported journalism that holds power accountable. As a Lever Premium subscriber, you'll get to hear exclusive bonus content from this episode and others in your feed. To become a subscriber, go to levernews.com. Hello, this is Frank Capello from The Lever, an independent investigative news outlet. This mini-episode is part of our Inside the Story series, where we highlight some of The Lever's original reporting and speak with the journalists who wrote the story. Today, I'm joined by The Lever's Julia Rock and Rebecca Burns. Julia, Rebecca, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having us on, Frank. Hey, Frank. So the two of you, uh, along with our colleague Matthew Cunningham-Cook and uh, Lever founder David Sirota, have been working very, very hard over the last two days, writing a new report for The Lever, which provided crucial context about the recent train derailment and ensuing explosion in East Palestine, Ohio. Specifically, how the rail industry helped kill a federal safety rule aimed at upgrading the rail industry's braking systems, and how industry lobbyists convinced regulators to exempt trains like this from being regulated as, quote, high-hazard flammable trains. So before we get into into that, into the meat of the story, let's start at the beginning. Rebecca, can you give me a little bit of background on the derailment itself? What exactly happened and why was this explosion so toxic? Right. So the derailment happened in East Palestine, Ohio, which is a small town of about 5,000 people on the Ohio-Pennsylvania border. Um, Last Friday, a Norfolk Southern train derailed. Um, So the incident is still under investigation. What we do know is it seemed like an axle broke. Um, The train derailed and then immediately burst into flames. And what was really frightening um, about this incident is that it wasn't immediately clear to first responders what kind of chemicals were being transported on this freight train. Residents within a mile of the accident were ordered to evacuate, um, and then we've slowly been learning uh, just what was being carried on board um, and you know what kind of health effects it could have for people in the area who were exposed to it. So a very serious accident with very serious chemical repercussions. So let's get into what you both reported on, and let's start with the train's braking system. So what was the issue with the train's brakes, and how did the safety rule regarding train braking systems get watered down by the rail industry? Right. So the first thing to note is that uh, most of the nation's trains still run um, in operation with a braking system that dates back to the Civil War era. Um, They're compressed air brakes that essentially when a train engineer pulls the air brake, um, air pressure moves from one car to the next and train cars stop individually. So there's a lag time between an emergency happening, uh, you know, an engineer pulling the brake and the train actually coming to a stop. Starting in the early 2000s, regulators started pushing the railroads to upgrade to electronic braking system that would have far better uh, stopping time in in cases of emergency. Now, at first, uh, railroads themselves were actually totally on board with this uh, because they thought it would save them money. um, In uh, in having to make stops to get their brake systems inspected. 
Then when regulators actually move to make these kinds of technological upgrades mandatory, uh, railroads, including Norfolk Southern, turned around and said, no, we don't want to do this. It's too expensive. So specifically, um, you might remember that in 2014, there was a really horrifying uh, train accident in Canada. Um, a train carrying crude oil exploded, took out an entire town center and killed 47 people. So after that, um, you know, there's a big push to make uh, trains carrying oil and hazardous materials safer, including by upgrading to these electronic brakes that remember up until now, everybody had agreed um, were, were much safer and more efficient. Uh, but again, when a sort of push came to shove in terms of being required by regulators to make these upgrades, um, railroads balked and worked with lobbyists uh, first to weaken the rule and then under the Trump administration to repeal it outright, saying that, you know, the expenses of this rule um, exceeded the benefits in terms of how many lives uh, and and other costs related to accidents it could actually prevent. Thank you so much for that, Rebecca. So let's move on to the hazardous material that the train was carrying that caused this explosion. Julia, why wasn't the vinyl chloride on board more tightly regulated? So uh, as, as people saw from the images probably floating around on Twitter, the images in our story, the chemicals being carried on the train, like the vinyl chloride uh, you mentioned, are highly flammable. And, and so um, the train sort of did this deliberate release after the derailment happened, which, which resulted in, 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 in the huge mushroom cloud that uh, you might have seen in the pictures. And, and you're right, Frank, one of those chemicals on board uh, sort of the full scope of what was being carried, like Rebecca said, still under investigation. But one of them was was vinyl chloride, which is used in a lot of normal plastic products, but in its gas form is highly flammable and toxic. And so as Rebecca had been talking about back during the 2010s, when the Obama administration was moving to require trains carrying highly flammable things like crude oil, hazard, other hazardous materials, they're, they were under pressure from the chemical industry and chemical industry lobbyists to sort of narrow the scope of what type of chemicals would would um, trigger this requirement that trains be re retrofitted with better safety features. One of those chemicals was vinyl chloride. <laughs> so the, the train that just derailed in East Palestine where there were these crazy images of a uh, hundred foot flames and a mushroom cloud, that train actually wasn't being regulated as a high hazard flammable train. Got it. So the rail industry clearly doesn't want to spend their money on making their trains and the cargo that they're carrying safer. So what has the industry been doing to cut costs and what are they actually spending their money on? Well, so one of the huge story news stories of the fall that the lever was covering was union negotiations between rail workers and uh, railroad bosses. And at issue in those negotiations was the fact that railroads have slashed their workforces by nearly 30 percent over Fewer than the past 10 years, I think it's the past six years or so, their workforces are obviously understaffed given that cutting. Workers are fatigued. Uh, they're, they're being asked to work too much. They, they are punished for, um, you know, requesting days off too late or sometimes they can't take their days off. So this is sort of 
happening against the backdrop of all sorts of cost-cutting measures, which uh, have let, left the railroads, you know, without these updated safety features, with exhausted workforces, um, and and with understaffing. Why were they doing that? They were doing that because uh, investors wanted them to be returning. Uh, the money to them instead in the form of stock buybacks and, and dividends. And, and the executives wanted to enrich themselves with um, much bigger paychecks. Well, thank you both so much for your work on this story. I know uh, the two of you and Matthew and David have been really cranking on it for the last two days. And this is really important because it provided a lot of very crucial context that I think a lot of news outlets miss. So I really appreciate the work that you both did on this, and thank you for joining me today to talk about it. Thanks so much, Frank. Thanks, Frank. Listeners can find the link to the full story in the episode description in your podcast player. And if you enjoyed this story and would like to support The Lever's original reporting, you can go to levernews.com and subscribe to our free newsletter. You can also share this podcast episode with your family and friends. And if you really want to support the very hard work that our team is doing, you can go to levernews.com slash subscribe to become a paid supporter. This gives you access to all of The Lever's premium editorial and podcast content and you will be directly supporting independent journalism and that is all for the low price of just eight dollars a month which is half the price of a standard netflix account thank you so much for listening and keep rocking the boat